Well, good morning again, everybody. We are going to spend some time in the Bible, uh, as is our custom on Sunday morning. And so I want to invite you, if you will, to uh, turn with me to the book of um, Romans. And we're going to be in chapter 8. I'll tell you exactly where in just a second. And if you're watching online through our website, you will notice to the right of the picture, there's an opportunity for you to use a Bible translation to follow along with the scripture. There's also a place for there for you to take notes if you want to do that. And uh, so I encourage you to take advantage of those resources that are in front of you uh, for our time together in the Word. So um, join me praying. Lord, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for the privilege of having your Word, having the Bible in front of us. We're free to open it and read it and have you speak to us through it. Father, we pray that that's exactly what would happen this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus, that name above every name. And we do want to thank Pooh Bear for showing up this morning and helping us out. We appreciate his presence. And uh, he's he's quite the wise bear sometimes, uh, opinions to the contrary. He's a very smart bear. Anyway, I used to be a bit of a political junkie and, uh, and uh, really liked watching what was going on in the world of politics um, and hearing the different candidates for different offices along the way. I have to confess that over the last several years, I have become less of a political junkie, mostly because I think there's more political junk out there. Um, and, but um, here's a thing I've noticed about politicians, and I know some of are, are earnestly seeking to follow God's plan for their lives as they serve, uh, as they perform public service in elected office. I completely get that, and I fully respect those folks for doing it. We have a, one of those folks in our own congregation who's who's doing a really great work to honor God in his, uh, his uh, uh, political calling. But Sometimes, with some politicians, they tend to make a lot of promises. It seems like, <clears throat> particularly in our national campaigns, which seem like they never end, we finish one and they start gearing up for the next one, that the, the campaigns are populated by <clears throat> excuse me, more and more promises. And some of the promises are outlandish. Some of the promises that when we hear, we hear them, we know instantly that that can't possibly happen. And yet still, the promises come our way. And here's the thing that bothers me about that, is that outline, outlandish promises, promises that we all know cannot possibly be fulfilled, they devalue, in my view, they devalue promises as a category, right? If time after time after time after time we hear a promise that doesn't come true, then we're going to think after a while, well, nobody's word is good about anything. But here's the deal. We need to understand that not all promises are the same. And today, we're going to encounter a life-changing promise from the Word of God. So it is in the book of Romans, chapter 8, just the last three verses, verses 28 through 30. I'm going to read to you, not, they're not the last three verses, but the three verses that we're going to focus on this morning. And here's the thing for us. As believers in Jesus, we can know the power of God to work all things together for our good. That's a promise I want to hold on to today. I don't know about you. Anyway, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. The Bible says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those God called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. 
The first thing out of this passage is the promise, right? God works together all things for good. God is the active agent. Things just don't work out by themselves. The God that we serve is sovereign. He is active. He is invested in this world. He is invested in us. And God, as Jesus has said in the Gospels, God is at work to this very day. And he's at work in the middle of all things, which kind of blows my mind, but he's at work in the middle of all things, the good and the bad and the ugly. One of the things I love about Christianity is that it's real. It's genuine. It sees the world as it is. It's not some pie in the sky by and by. It's an actual acknowledgement of the actual world that's in front of us. We're not in denial. Christians are not in denial about reality. We, we all know there's bad stuff out there. 2012, a guy named Jason Pulleyup in Washington, Washington State burned down his house with him and his two sons in it after he was denied full custody of his sons. He was on a phone call with a social worker for eight or ten minutes during that process, and then he burned the house down. We know there's evil out there. We know there's trouble out there. And man, look around today, right? COVID-19, how many times have we said that word in the last several months, a word that we never, ever, ever had in our vocabularies before? Christians, man, we are aware that there's trouble in the world. But the Bible says that God is at work for our good in the midst of those troubles. Now, here's the thing. Unlike an unelected uh, politician, how do we know that God actually has the power to do, to honor this promise? The guarantee of the promise is the resurrection. If you're driving around town and you happen to disobey the traffic limits or the traffic laws and you get pulled over by a police officer, they're going to ask you for your registration and your proof of insurance. Now, I don't know this from personal experience, but I am acquainted with at least one person who does know this from from personal experience. When they pull you over, they want to see that insurance proof, that insurance card, because it shows that somebody else is standing behind the safety and financial well-being of that vehicle. Well, here's the thing. The resurrection is our proof of insurance that God stands behind all of the promises that he's made, including this one. So it's worth reviewing the fact that many, many people have tried to debunk the resurrection as a historical event. But every person who has objectively looked at the actual historical evidence has come away with this conclusion, that the Jesus who was dead on the cross on Friday was alive on Sunday. Now, I know I recommended this book to you before, and I really encourage you to get it by a guy named Frank Morrison called Who Moved the Stone? A more updated version of the same idea, the same exploration of that process is by a guy named Lee Strobel, and his book is The Case for Christ. And what we see in the Bible is all over the place that the scripture underscores the resurrection as God's affirmation of the person and work of Jesus. Romans chapter 1, back at the beginning of this book of Romans that we're in, the Apostle Paul says that God has declared, Jesus has been declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He, God, has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you get it? The resurrection is real. 
We bank on it as a promise. And in Romans chapter 8, where we're spending most of our time this morning, it's the resurrection is our guarantee that this promise that God has made, he can fulfill it. But you knew there was a but, right? You knew there was a condition, there was a catch of some kind. There is a condition of this promise. The promise is for those who love him, who love God, who are called, in verse 29, called according to his purpose. This promise is for believers. This promise is for Christians. This promise is for, is for people who have a personal connection by faith with Jesus Christ. This promise is for people who are obedient to that purpose. And if that condition is satisfied, and that is the condition, right? But it's even a condition that God himself enables to happen in our lives. He gives us the faith that we express to say yes to Jesus. The result of that promise and the result of that condition is that we can share the Apostle Paul's confidence in the work of God. When Paul starts out this passage that we're looking at this morning, he says, we know, not we're thinking about, not we might, uh, it might be a possibility, not some kind of tenuous idea, but no, but we know. This is a confident expectation of faith. A little while back, we looked in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 at that, what we call the Faith Hall of Fame. And in chapter 11, verse 1, the writer of Hebrews says this, that we have confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. We know. And Paul knew what he was talking about from personal experience. His hardships, he records, turned out for to be for the furtherance of the gospel. Do you get this? God's at work through the troubles that came the Apostle Paul's way to accomplish his purposes. The book of Philippians chapter 1. Paul says, Now I want you to know, sisters and brothers, that what has happened to me, and by the way, when he writes these words, he's in jail. He's under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. Can you imagine that job, being chained to the Apostle Paul for 24 hours a day? Now, I want you to know, sisters and brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And in the immediate context, what had happened to him was, again, he was in prison. But Paul had endured way more than that um, particular house arrest situation. And I think it's worth a reminder. So just for a second, I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at about verse 23. Paul's talking. He says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. So that's just a thumbnail sketch, if you will, of the kinds of things that Paul says God has been working in the middle of to work the good for us and for his purposes. And it's interesting to me, and I hope it's interesting to you, that Paul's most disagreeable trials were the means by which the power of Christ rested on him. 
So that in 2 Corinthians, he can say this in chapter 12. But Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I love that. I love that. That in our weakness, as we seek and serve to honor him, God's power is made perfect. It's not made perfect by your stellar resume. It's not made perfect by our educational credentials. It's not made perfect by our bank account balance. It's not made perfect by the circle of mover and shaker acquaintances that we might have. No, it's made perfect. This power is made perfect in weakness. And that's why Paul says, that's why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Pastor Laura read for us from the book of Genesis earlier. It was similar to Joseph's experience. And I really encourage you to spend some time reading about the life of this guy, Joseph, in the book of Genesis. His brothers wound up trying to uh, get him uh, sold into slavery because they didn't like that he was mom and dad's favorite. And once he got sold into slavery, he had all kinds of things come his way, including some Jail time of his own, it's not a prerequisite to be a Christian that you have to have jail time. But nonetheless, um, um, uh, Joseph had jail time of his own. And then, then he gets elevated to this power of uh, uh, influence and authority such that when trouble comes, and trouble comes in the form of a famine, such that when trouble comes, Joseph is in a position to help out his brothers. And his brothers come to him and they are scared to death. They are knee-knocking, scared to death when they see him. But he says this. He says to his brothers, You meant that stuff for harm, but God meant it for good. We too can approach life with this confident expectation that even in the middle of, even in the, middle of the disasters, the troubles, if we love him and we are called according to his purpose, he's at work. I had a, a, a friend of a friend of mine. The friend of mine was named Harry. He was the guy who was influential, most influential on me coming to faith in Christ when I was a young second lieutenant in the Air Force. Harry had a friend who said to him, and I was with Harry when he said this, he said, he was about to get out of the military. He said, you know what? I don't know what's coming next, but he said, God has a present out there for me to unwrap. You see, he didn't know what it was, but he knew God was at work to provide good things for him. So one of the things that's important in this passage, though, is that we have to define a key word. And that key word is the word good, G-O-O-D. What is the good that God's at work primarily to do in us and through us in the middle of difficulty when we know that he's at work in all things together for, the, for our good, for those who love us, for those who love him and are called to according to his purposes? In verse 29, we find the definition of good. In verse 29, the definition of good is that we might be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. That's the ultimate good. That's the good that he's working out in our character, in our lives, in our expressions with other people around us. The good that he's working on is this good that reflects the image of Jesus with whomever we happen to be and wherever we happen to be, in whatever situation we happen to be, that we reflect the image of Jesus. See, God is not some grandparent to spoil us as his children by fulfilling every whim. That's not who God is. 
God is not a vending machine. So we pop in our prayer requests and out pops our favorite uh, uh, fulfillment of that prayer request. I saw a cartoon the other day that said that, it was a cartoon, it's not real, but it said that Amazon was now disguising its packages when it makes a delivery, disguising them as like, household plants or things that we'd find naturally on your porch or outside your door so that people who lived with you, your spouse or whomever, wouldn't know how much you were ordering from Amazon. I thought that was hysterical. Not that I've been ordering more than normal from Amazon myself. But here's the thing about Amazon, if you're an Amazon customer. You know that when you look something else, something up on Amazon, something that you've been wanting, something that you think you've been needing, that you look it up and you have this option. You have these options to put it in your shopping cart so you think about it a little bit. Or you can click on the button that says buy now with one click. Click to order now. God is not Amazon.com. We're not just pushing buttons on some cosmic website to get what we want from God in our terms and by our definition of what is good. No, the good that is at work here is our conformity to the image of Jesus, that somehow people can look past us and our, and our, and our visual presentation and they can hear in us those winsome words from Jesus about how much God loves us and how much he loves them. There's a caution, I think, associated with this passage that I want to underscore. The caution is this, that we don't always get to see how things are working out. Sometimes, at least, not right away. Sometimes we, we don't see it at all. We trust. I, when I was in Woodland Park, Colorado, I was on the board of the local crisis pregnancy center. And a young woman came and availed herself of our services. And she had a uh, she was, had an unplanned pregnancy and uh, we needed to navigate through it. And we helped her navigate through it and helped her family navigate through it. She kept the baby. This little boy was born. His name was Tyler. When Tyler turned four, he was diagnosed with and subsequently succumbed to cancer. Now, I got to tell you, as a member of that pregnancy center board, I went, I, I don't see God. I don't see you at work here, but I have to have confidence that you are at work here because we know, right? We know. We're not just guessing. We're not just figuring. We're not just hoping. We know that God is at work together for our good, for those of us who he has called and are living according to his purposes. Here's another story. Sometimes we do get to see it work out. Here's another story. More than 24 years ago, Pam and her husband Bob were serving as missionaries to the Philippines and praying for a fifth child. Can you imagine? Five of them. Pam uh, contracted amoebic dysentery, an infection of the intestine caused by a parasite that's found in contaminated food or drink. And she went into a coma, coma and was treated with strong antibiotics before they found out that she was pregnant with that fifth child. The physicians urged her to abort the baby for her own safety and told her that the medicines had caused irreversible damage to her baby. She refused the abortion and, and hoping uh, and hope that her son would be born without those devastating disabilities that the physicians had advertised. She ultimately, Pam ultimately spent the last two months of her pregnancy in bed and eventually gave birth to a healthy baby boy on August 14, 1987. Pam's youngest son is a preacher. He preaches in prisons 
He makes hospital visits, and he serves with his father's ministry in the Philippines. He also has played football. His name is Tim Tebow. I was in the military, and I was leaving... um, and uh, and uh, as I was leaving the military, my particular reserve spot uh, was going to be taken over by a guy that I hadn't met before. His name was Mike. So Mike and I got to talking a little bit, and it turned out we had a friend in common. And that friend in common was that guy, Harry, I told you about, who was instrumental in me coming to Jesus. It turned out that Mike was instrumental in leading Harry to the Lord back in the time when they were at the Air Force Academy together. Mike leads Harry to the Lord. Harry leads me to the Lord, right? Do you see it? God at work together to bring about good, to conform us to the image of Christ. So even though there is a caution that sometimes we don't get to see it work out, it is absolutely fundamentally true that even in the middle of something like COVID-19, God is at work together in in using stuff to, to conform us to the image of Christ. And he calls that the ultimate good. We know God is working together for our good. Sometimes it's unfortunate we can only see God at work, what he was doing by looking in the rearview mirror. But man, we don't drive that way, right? We drive looking ahead. And as we look ahead, we rest in this confidence that the Apostle Paul has expressed for us and that I hope this morning you can join in in affirming with a giant amen. Now, I know the congregational crowd isn't a giant amen crowd, but nonetheless... Amen. God is at work together for our good. Amen to that. Now, 